I guess it's time for me to start talking. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. I am back. Uh, the scans for my wife were fine yesterday. Thank you for the prayers and the kind words. Uh, I, I, you know, she handles it so much better than me, and she's the one who's got to go through it. it, it but she does. So in any event, thank you for the prayers. Uh, we will get to the the William Barr threatening to resign stuff and, and, and the the hysteria about it. But I actually I was in um, if you're familiar with middle Georgia, there's a chain of Mexican restaurants called Margaritas. There's one by my house. I was in there on Monday and a guy from Rome, Thomas. I'm I'm like pretty sure his name was Thomas. He listens at, at WRGA in Rome, and he was in Macon doing a construction work. And I was in there picking up si- uh, uh, supper dinner on uh, Monday night, and he came up to me, and it was it's always discombobulating when that happens. But he was very nice. Uh, introduced himself, said he listens in Rome. Uh, was in Macon for a job, and and couldn't believe he actually ran into me there. He was staying at the. I live in a neighborhood, and there's a hotel in the Mexican restaurant. They're all right there, and he was staying in the hotel in any event. Um, so he want, he asked me about polls. He's been he's heard me talk about polls on this program, and why do I talk about the polls when the polls are wrong? And I actually I, I explained to him a little bit, but then I thought, you know, I'm I'm not on Tuesday, but on Wednesday I want to do this, and there, it's actually very timely because there's a Pew report out. Yes, Pew. Pew actually does a very good job. They're excellent researchers, much like Gallup. You can largely believe uh, when the Pew poll says something, uh, you know, these are serious people and they're worth paying attention to. And so I want to delve into the Pew poll research, and there's some related tie-ins here that we need to be aware of. And what the Pew poll determined, I'm trying to pull up the article here, what the Pew poll determined, which is very interesting, is that a lot of pollsters are increasingly relying on online surveys. And those are bad. And you should not pay attention to them. Let me me read you this out of the Pew survey. More than 80% of the public polls used to track key indicators of U.S. public opinion, such as the president's approval rating, or support for Democrat presidential candidates are conducted using online opt-in polling. A new study by Pew Research Center finds that online polls conducted with widely used opt-in sources contain small but measurable shares of bogus respondents, about 4% to 7%, depending on the source. Critically, these bogus respondents are not just answering at random, but rather they tend to select positive answer choices, including a small systematic bias into estimates like presidential approval. This pattern is not partisan. While 70% of bogus respondents reported approving of President Donald Trump's job performance, their approval rating of the 2010 health care law, also known as Obamacare, was even higher at 84%. Open-ended answers show that some respondents answer as though they were taking a market research survey. While some challenges to polls are ever-present, such as respondents not answering carefully or giving socially desirable answers, the risk that bad actors could compromise a public opinion poll is, in some respects, a new one. It is a consequence of the field's migration toward online convenience samples of people who signed themselves up to get money or other rewards by taking surveys. This introduces the risk that some people will answer not with their own views, but instead with answers they believe are likely to please the poll's sponsor. 
It also raises the possibility that people who do not belong in a U.S. poll will try to misrepresent themselves to complete surveys and accrue money or other rewards. Dun, dun, dun. So now where does this come in? I am very, very leery of online polls, and I was before this. And I, I'm 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 more so because of this pupil. It is it's really interesting data. Uh, you should always be skeptical of Pew, and and that's why, for example, a lot of collegiate polls are problematic. Emerson uh, polling is actually pretty garbage polling. I, I I don't believe the Emerson polls, and the Emerson poll uh, it has in the past I believe used online surveys. There are a lot of pollsters out there pointing out that uh, a number of major polling companies that get cited in the media do this. Now, the biggest ones you should understand, the biggest ones, don't worry about this, the major media polls do not use online polling samples. Uh, so the Gallup poll, the the Ipsos poll, the, the YouGov poll, the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, um, I'm trying the, the the Quinnipiac poll, all of these polls that you hear about, these big ones, they don't use online sampling, which is good. Uh, you don't want that. Uh, but a lot of polls, and this was Gallup's problem. Gallup for the longest time was only using landlines and not cell phones. And if you'll recall, Gallup's polling was so bad, uh, it decided they weren't going to do presidential polling. Gallup used to be the gold standard. And it's it's it got so bad they stopped doing it. They needed to to remod they needed to modify how they were doing polls. And now they use cell phones. You've got to use cell phones if your pollster doesn't use cell phones. That's a problem. Now, uh, the guy Thomas, who's from Rome, who saw me on Monday night, one of the things that he raised is something we've had callers to this program raise as well. He's never gotten a poll. He's never gotten a poll. So why uh, should he believe the credibility of pollsters? Well. Here's the thing. Do you want to know who the most powerful people on planet Earth are? Seriously, the most powerful people on planet Earth. I actually had this conversation last night with a buddy of mine at, at dinner. Uh, we were in total agreement on this. The most powerful people on planet Earth are people who are registered to vote and their cell phone number is in their voter registration file. The most powerful people on planet Earth are the people who have a cell phone number tied to their voter registration file. Now, why? Why on Earth? Well, because if your cell phone is in your voter registration file, the odds of you getting a poll call go up measurably, statistically significant increase in the amount of poll. In fact, you'll begin to hate life. You'll get so many pollsters calling you all the time, and it won't just be political pollers. It'll be market research people, and you'll have a poll for everything. I mean, the people who get poll phone calls, are they shape public opinion. I mean, let, let's be clear here. What, what polling actually does is it shapes public opinion. When you hear that Mike Bloomberg has skyrocketed 15 points in the polling, well, you, you tend to take a second look at Mike Bloomberg. Well, who did Mike Bloomberg skyrocket in the polling with? He skyrocketed in the polling with people who have their cell phone number attached to their voter registration file. And so suddenly you're taking a look at him because these people are taking a look at him, and it shapes polling. It really actually does, statistically significant. You want to get a poll phone call. You say, oh, Nobody ever calls me for the Gallup has never called me. That's what you need to do. You go update your voter registration file and you make sure your cell phone's in there and then watch out. You will start hating life 
when they start calling you for these polls. But then think about it. They call and, and you tell people, oh, I, I think Donald Trump is going to – suddenly Trump goes up in the polls. Or the market researcher calls and, and you you say, oh, yeah, I, I like Chick-fil-A more than, than Zaxby's. Well, guess what? Chick-fil-A is going to get a market bump. You know, that's in the, the uh, UGA AJC poll that uh, Chick-fil-A is the number one fast food restaurant in Georgia. Well, of course it is. We'll get into that polling here in, in just a minute. But that that's the deal. Uh, you, you never get a phone call from a pollster because your cell phone number is not in your voter registration file. Those who have their cell phone in their voter registration file are getting those calls. If you want to get those calls, that's what you have to do. And that makes you extremely powerful because you then shape public opinion, not just in politics, but, but across the board on things. And we're beginning to see this polling take shape. Now, you also need to understand why the media relies on the polling. The, the media needs a snapshot. One of my major complaints about the media these days, particularly the political press, is that they are governed by the polls. The media takes shape based on the polls. The stories the media tells are based on polling. Uh, One day, when I turn this into a national program, I actually want to do polls. I want to take some of the money out of my own pocket, and I want to conduct polls. The, The Eric Erickson Poll of Voters. It'd be a really good poll, and tell us what the country thinks. But here's a problem of this as well. Um, the 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 polling on issues is always bad because there's a psychological method to ask the questions, and a lot of pollsters are very bad at asking the question the right way. I, I've played this audio before, but this is worth playing again so so that you 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 get the gist of why the polling is you're you're you can be shaped by the opinion polling. It's one thing to ask you who you support for president. But it's a completely different thing to ask you what you think about policy positions, because by and large, you're not an expert on a policy position. And the question can be shaped in such a way as to get you to say what the pollster wants. And that's why, for example, overwhelmingly you see that uh, when advocacy polling is done, when partisan polling is done, they're asking about issues. They're not asking about candidates. Do you want Obamacare? Well, the Democrats can phrase it in such a way that you'll say yes. The Republicans can take the same same poll and, and phrase it so that you say no. And you'll have a half the media saying, oh, well, 52 percent want Obamacare. And then the other half said, no, 60 percent say they don't. Now, interestingly, enough, I use Obamacare intentionally because actually there was never a poll conducted that showed a majority of Americans wanted it, and yet they've pushed it through anyway. But listen to this clip. This, this is from the uh, – I love this clip. I keep it on file to play it for times like this. This is from Yes, Prime Minister, uh, great old British uh, comedy. He's going to say something new and radical in the broadcast. What, that silly grand design? Bernard, that was precisely what you had to avoid. How did this come about? I shall need a very good explanation. Well, he's very keen on it. What's that got to do with it? (laughs) Things don't happen just because prime ministers are very keen on them. Neville Chamberlain was very keen on peace. (laughs) (laughs) He he thinks thinks it's a vote winner. Ah, that's more serious to done. What makes him think that? Well, the party who had an opinion poll done, it seems all the voters are in favour of bringing back national service. Well, I have another opinion poll done showing the voters are against bringing back national service. <laughs> we can't be for it and oh, against Of course they can, Bernard. Have you ever been surveyed? Yes. Well, not me, actually. My house. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> well, Bernard, you know what happens. Nice young lady comes up to you. Obviously, you want to create a good impression. You don't want to look a fool, do you? <laughs> no. No. So she starts no. asking you some questions. Mr. Woolley, are you worried about the number of young people without jobs? Yes. 
Are you worried about the rise in crime among teenagers? Yes. Do you think there's a lack of discipline in our comprehensive schools? Yes. Do you think young people welcome some authority and leadership in their lives? Yes. Do you think they respond to a challenge? Yes. Would you be in favor of reintroducing national service? Yes. <laughs> oh, well, I suppose I might. Yes or no? Yes. Of course you would, Bernard. After all you've told you, you can't say no to that. <laughs> so, they don't mention the first five questions and they publish the last one. Is that really what they do? Well, not the reputable ones, no, but there aren't many of those. <laughs> so, alternatively, the young lady can get the opposite result. How? Mr. Woolley, are you worried about the danger of war? Yes. Are you worried about the growth of armaments? Yes. Do you think there's a danger in giving young people guns and teaching them how to kill? Yes. Do you think it's wrong to force people to take up arms against their will? Yes. Would you oppose the reintroduction of national service? Yes. <laughs> there you are, you see, Bernard. The perfect balanced sample. So, we just commission our own survey for the Ministry of Defence. See to it, Bernard. There you go. I, 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 honestly, that, that, that makes a lot of fun of it, but that's the way it works. And that's why you should never pay attention to issue polling, even though so much of the media does. How, how many people in the media uh, go out, out of their way to tell you, well, a majority of Americans believe this policy? You know, the, the rule here is that with the president of the United States or anyone else, you should never be governed by public opinion poll. I'm not a huge Dick Morris fan, but one of the, the great pieces of advice of Dick Morris that he gave to Bill Clinton when he was Bill Clinton's pollster was never let a poll tell you what to do. Your job is to use polling to shape how you explain yourself to the American public. So you come up with a policy position, and then you go use public opinion polling to figure out the way to talk about it. That's why, for example— um, people do not talk about uh, workers and employees so much anymore. They've, they've changed the, the, the phraseology. The, they talk about Americans and jobs. It used to be you talk about employees a lot. You'd hear lots of people talk about employees. Well, guess what? It, it turns out that nobody really sees themselves as an employee per se. No one really sees themselves as a worker. Uh, they, they talk about Americans with jobs uh, and talk about Americans with jobs – and that polls differently from when you ask about employees. The, the phraseology matters. That's how you use polls. Now, the American media relies on polls too much, and the entire media these days is driven uh, by their their quest to use polling to shape the news. And any poll that shows Donald Trump doing badly gets a lot of media attention. The question, though, is are Trump supporters participating in the polls? And that's an open question, and there's some data to suggest uh, that the polling continues to undercount the president's support. The full number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I mentioned the other day the phenomenon of the Trump whisperer. The, uh, the the column by Brett Stevens in the New York Times. Y'all, we are we're in 2020. The president of the United States is Donald Trump, and I still know people, a significant portion of whom do not believe they can openly say they support the president, which is crazy. This is the president of the United States, and, and there are people who come up to you and they, they whisper their support of the president. And so I, I do think, and, and a lot of pollsters do think, there is data out there that suggests that uh, Trump voters 
are either not participating in the polls. They're not being willfully excluded. That's one thing you do need to understand here is the major pollsters out there, there's no conspiracy to exclude Trump voters. Uh, The question is, are they being honest with pollsters or are they even in the polls? Consider this. uh, The University of Georgia and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution have done a series of polls together. And in their last polling, they had Brian Kemp at 54 percent approval. And uh, though at 54 percent approval, the they asked the question, who did you vote for in 2016 to try to get a balanced sample of voters? And Donald Trump won 48 percent of the vote in Georgia. Hillary Clinton won 45 percent of the vote in Georgia. And in the AJC polling, Hillary Clinton's uh, got 45 percent of the poll. So 45 percent of people who are responding to the UGA AJC poll said they voted for Hillary Clinton, which gives you a fairly balanced snapshot. But with Trump voters, it was 41 percent. It should have been 48 if they were balanced out. There are clearly people who either they don't participate with pollsters or they're not willing to be truthful with pollsters. And there's plenty of phenomenon out there of, of uh, voters not being willing to give pollsters straight answers because they believe there is a bias in the poll. I, I, so I got to tell you guys a funny story. Um, our uh, my, my company that, that I, I work for with my other radio show – is doing a logo competition for their rebranding, and they sent out a survey of logos, and and they're all uh, terrifically terrible. And they did a survey, and and you had to put in your email address. I know people in my company who refused to put their email address in to give their honest opinion of what they thought of the logos. Not me, buddy. I was willing to put my email address in and say, these are the – we spent money on this? This is is ridiculous. What's the matter with the existing logo? Yeah. Nobody wanted to hear from me on that, though. But I, I know people who wouldn't participate because they, they were afraid they'd get in trouble giving their their blunt and candid advice. I got to tell you, though, come on. I, 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 I'm I going to get in trouble for talking about the company. But <laughs> I just like this is the best we could do, really, in any event. Um, it, it, it will. It was above my pay grade, I guess. So I didn't submit one. But I thought, man, maybe I should have gone out and hired somebody competent to do this. Um, but. There are people who didn't want to participate in the same way with Trump voters. There there are Trump voters who don't want to participate in the surveys. And that makes Democratic voices more powerful in the polling uh, for the major pollsters out there. When they call, they identify themselves. uh, They tell you who they're calling from. And they they don't really know who you are. You're not tracked. Now, I'm sure there probably are some who would track you, but if you if you Pew or Gallup or CNN or Fox or USA Today or, or NBC Wall Street Journal, they're, they're reputable pollsters who aren't going to do that. But it still matters. There is no great conspiracy. But we're headed into 2020, and you got to remember the polling in 2016 was not wrong. I know many of you think the polling was wrong. Uh, Thomas from Rome the other night mentioned the polling being wrong. It's like it wasn't wrong. Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote and won it within 2% of the polling average. It wasn't wrong. The problem is that we don't pick the president with the popular vote. you got to pay attention to the polling in the states, the state-by-state polling, the swing states in particular. And you know what? Contrary to all of the hype and buzz out there about the president uh, doing badly against the Democrats, if you actually look at the state-by-state, the swing state polling – the president's not doing as bad as the national media would have you believe. It's like they have forgotten the lessons of 2016 or they don't want to learn those lessons because they would have to actually acknowledge uh, that the president 
might actually get reelected. We should look into that polling and explain why the media is not covering it when we come back. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425 is the number. Let's dive into this. And and I I, I don't want to bore y'all, but this is worth talking about. And not just because I got ambushed in a restaurant on Monday night. (laughs) Seriously. It's amazing how you can set the agenda of this program with just an email or or I I actively discourage people. You know, I I became that person on and I mentioned this on Monday. I have become the person who wears my headphones in the grocery store because people want to come up to me and talk about stuff I said on radio. Y'all don't understand how this works. Like my my boss uh, for my other show will come up to me in commercial break immediately after I'm done with the segment and tell me how great the segment was. And I have no idea what the segment was about. I can't remember the moment it has left my mouth, it leaves my brain. That may actually be technically part of the problem. But nonetheless, you get my point. Uh, I, I can't remember what I've said. And people want to come up to me in the grocery store and say, hey, what you said the other day on blah, 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 blah. I have no idea what I said. So now I've become that guy who wears the headphones in the grocery store. So people have to leave me alone uh, and, and not talk to me about the show. But nonetheless, I, I digress. The, the, the actual the polling on the president. Here's the problem is n- we don't elect the president based on the national popular vote as much as the left would like it until the moment Donald Trump wins the national popular vote. And then suddenly that whole the, the whole resolution on giving your electoral college votes to whoever wins the popular vote will disappear immediately. Uh, the states that have passed it, like Virginia just passed it, will repeal it immediately the moment Donald Trump wins the national popular vote. The only reason the left likes the idea right now is because they are desperately uh, convinced that they have a lock on the national popular vote and Donald Trump does not. And, and they can st- uh, take the election by upending the the founders' designs on the Electoral College. Now, let's dive into the swing state polling. When you actually look at the swing state polling, the president's actually not doing really bad. So many of the conversations in the media are negative towards the president and hostile to the president. Uh, But when you look at the polling in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, states that he's got to win, he's he's tied with or doing better than the Democrats in the polling averages. And the polling average is important because there are some really bad polls out there and there are also some really good polls out there. And the bad polls and the good polls can be balanced out using a polling average. And polling averages are useful tools and you should always pay attention to the polling average. Never pay attention to the uh, individual polls. Now, individual polls, you can uh, you can certainly get a sense of things from individual polls. So, for example, um, in the it, it, there are lots of individual polls out there now on the race. For example, the ABC News Washington Post poll, 408 registered voters shows that Bernie Sanders is now ahead. Joe Biden at 32 percent. Joe Biden is in second place. I, I mean, Joe Biden, talk about electile dysfunction. He's just completely collapsed in the polling after being consistently at 28, 29 percent. You've now got Bernie Sanders skyrocketing and Joe Biden going down. And, and corresponding to Joe Biden's decline is the rise of, of Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg shooting up. But we've now got in the polling average, Sanders has a 10 point lead. That That's that's relevant here because let me give you the numbers. So ABC News is is 32%. Emerson is 29% for for Sanders. 
NBC News is 27%. Survey USA, 29%. NPR, PBS Marist is 31%. Morning Consult, 28%. Uh, the Economist, the YouGov poll is 22%. Now, the other thing you, you got to see is that uh, you've got likely voters versus registered voters. Uh, likely voters are people who have shown a propensity to vote in the past and say they're going to vote in the future. Uh, they are likely voters because the, the people who vote in the past tend to be voters in the future. Registered voters leans more Democrat than likely voters. Registered voters are anyone who's registered to vote. And a lot of pollsters will right now rely on registered voters because they haven't gotten their likely voter model yet. I would pay attention to likely voters more than registered voters. But, you, you know, uh, let me weave back into this. The, the morning consult poll, 15,974 registered voters. How exactly do you do this? It's actually 36,563 surveys with registered voters, including 15,974 surveys with Democratic primary voters, conducted February 12th through 14. Now, how exactly do they do this polling? It's remarkable when you actually uh, get there. But let's let's read the methodology. Morning Consult consults over 5,000 registered voters across the United States. Our latest results are based on 36,563 surveys with registered voters, 15,974 with Democratic primary voters. The interviews were conducted online, and the data was weighted to approximate a target sample of registered voters. An online poll. Now, the, the morning consult folks, their decision is that if they survey 36,563 people, 15,974 of whom are Democratic primary voters, that they have a, a massive enough sample that they can overcome the problems that Pew pointed out with bogus respondents on online polls. We will see. What, what I can tell you, what is notable, is that their polling and the sample size is so large, it tends to be balanced out except for this. Let me give you the leads for the non-online polls, the leads of the people of the pollsters who only call landline and cell phones. They don't do online polling. They just do cell phones and landlines. Sanders 16, Sanders 12, Sanders 11, Sanders 12. Now, let me give you the ones of people who do online polls, Sanders 8 and Sanders 7. In other words, the online polling doesn't have Bernie Sanders doing as well as just the phone polling. Uh, the methodology is always interesting in these polls, how they do, decide to do register voters or likely voters. And again, I, I don't want to do an academic class for you here this morning on polling. I, I used to have to design polls when I did political consulting. And it's very interesting. How do you shape the questions and then the random order? So, for example, if I call you on a poll and I ask you, who are you voting for for Democratic candidates? And the first person I call, I'll give you the names. Uh, Sanders, Biden, Bloomberg, Warren, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Steyer, Gabbard. The next person, when I call, the computer will rearrange the order. So next time it'll be Bloomberg, Biden, Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg, Steyer, Klobuchar, Gabbard. So you never ask the same uh, name first. And the reason you don't is because a lot of people will go with the very first name you ask. And so by shuffling the order, you weed that out. There will be a percentage point uh, that goes to the first name. So by shuffling them around, you actually get a more balanced sample. Now, all of this gets back to the president. I'm, and let me pull it back up out of the weeds for you. You can't pay attention to the national polls in the presidential race. You can pay attention to the national polls for the nomination. 
And you can pay attention to the national polls for the presidency if the margin is more than 5%. Now, why? If the margin is more than 5%, that tends to statistically translate across the states. When you get less than 5%, you're playing on the idiosyncrasies of the pool of voters surveyed. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're surveying a lot of people in California and New York and they're likely voters, and who are you going to vote for? And are you a Democrat, an independent, a, a Republican? Well, guess what? There are a lot of people in California who don't consider themselves Democrats, but they hate the president. They consider themselves independents, and so they're going to tell the pollster they're voting for the Democratic nominee. When you get above 5%, statistically what happens is the, the polling is so broad and, and so across the country that you can weed that stuff out, but there's a margin of error in all polls. When your polling is less than 5% between the candidates, you need to pay attention to the swing states. Now there's a problem. Here's your problem. It's harder to poll individual states than it is to just poll nationally. It's harder to poll individual states than to poll nationally because you've got to get what? A pool of people who are registered voters who have cell phone numbers, not just landline phone numbers. Now, why? Landline phone numbers tend to skew older and skew wider. So you need people with cell phones to get a more diverse pool of voters. You want as, as, as diverse a pool of voters as you possibly can. And so it becomes harder to poll at a statewide level. Take the polling here in Georgia right now. The University of Georgia and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution have conducted a poll. Interestingly enough, it shows Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins tied. It shows that Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins have uh, equivalent name ID statewide, uh, which gives her an advantage because of the money that she's got uh, when you think about it. But it's also an academic poll by the University of Georgia, I, with the exception of Quinnipiac. I don't particularly care for a lot of academic polling. And the reason I don't care for academic polling is because oftentimes it's students who are conducting the polls for their statistics class, and those students come and go. And the students have not accurately been trained on how to voice a question. Do you know it, 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 it matters when you're polling people what your voice is? Hi, I'm calling from Erickson Pollsters. I would like to find out, are you a registered Democrat or are you a registered Republican? As opposed to, hi, I'm calling from Eric Erickson Poland. Are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? Are you going to vote for that Bernie Sanders or are you going to vote for Donald Trump? Now, if you people want to please people, you, you hear that? Are you really going to tell this pollster that you're a Democrat voting for Bernie Sanders? You're probably not. And when the students call from the University of Georgia, hi, like uh, I'm calling from like the University of Georgia stats class and I'm like uh, conducting a poll and um, I want to know, are, are you going to vote for my friend Bernie or are you going to vote for that, that, that uh, I can't say his name, Trump? I mean, what, what are you going to do with, with, with little Katie from, from UGA now? And I'm not saying UGA actually does that. They, they do monitor the quality of the calls, but you get the point. I, I've heard academic, I've gotten an academic polling call before, 
And it, it was a student who clearly was out of their depth at asking the polls. you got to be careful with stuff like that. I don't typically like academic polls, and I don't like academic polls because they're there to teach students about the art of polling and statistics. They're not there to actually get an accurate poll. Consider the UGA poll uh, that they conducted for the AJC that had uh, 41% of the people in their survey voted for, for Donald Trump. If I was the pollster and I looked at that and I knew that Donald Trump actually got 48% in Georgia in 2016, I would keep boost my polling sample to try to get uh, a sample that had 48% went for Trump in 2016 since, I mean, that's your baseline for your poll there. We we actually know the, the actual legit poll is the election in 2016, and we know that 48% of the people in Georgia voted for Donald Trump and 45 voted for Clinton. So when you build your polling sample, you should have 48% said they voted for Trump in 2016 and, and 45 said they voted for Hillary, and they didn't do that. And I understand why they didn't, and in some cases it is a sign that Trump voters aren't participating in the polling or they don't want answer in the polling. And I get that, but still, I did just the parameters of the survey to try to get that much. But you got to go around the country and you got to poll in Wisconsin, and you got to poll in Pennsylvania, you got to poll in Iowa, you got to poll in Minnesota, you got to poll in the swing states. I mean, even Georgia, Georgia, technically, you know, the Democrats say they want Georgia, poll in Georgia. The nationwide polling for the president, when it gets close, the swing states matter so much more. And we don't have that data. Now, part of the reason we don't have the data as well is it's really expensive to conduct a phone call poll. You're talking tens of thousands of dollars to get it done right. And that, by the way, is why some groups outsource to colleges because a college has has uh, forced labor. Uh, they're not called slaves. They're called students. And they participate because it's an academic program, and they're going to fail if they don't serve as a pollster in the call center that night. They kick out the people calling for alumni dollars, and they start calling for their polling, and they get their polling. And, and so that's why you can do an academic poll cheaper. But just because it's cheaper doesn't mean it's better. So you got to pay attention out there to all of this that's happening right now. Uh, I can tell you, again, going full circle, the polling average matters. The polling average is significant. But here's the other problem. As we head into Super Tuesday, Super Tuesday will be March 3rd. Now, you're going to have California, Texas, North Carolina, Massachusetts, Maine, Virginia, Utah, Colorado, Oklahoma, uh, a number of these states. But when you actually look at the polling, there hasn't been any significant polling in some of these states in a very long time because it's really expensive to poll individual states. Typically, you've got to rely on the media in those states to do the polling. And who do the media in those states turn to? The media in those states turn to academic institutions because they can get a discount on their polling, and the academic institutions tend not to be very good. Or they turn to political shops that do the polling, and many of the political shops that do the polling, they're really invested partisan in one side or the other or in their own name ID, and they have a real incentive to get polls. And you see this, by the way, in Georgia all the time. How many of the polls, remember the polls in 2014 uh, that uh, David Perdue was going to lose to Michelle Nunn and Nathan Deal was going to lose to Jason Carter, and the media hyped those polls, and they were coming from political shops that had a vested interest in salacious polling because it boosted their subscriptions. I'm aware of a polling company that as a side outfit runs a political publication. And if your campaign is not advertising in the political publication, guess how well your candidate is going to do in the polls. And yet people treat this um, treat this magazine and its coverage and its polls as accurate. And you will never hear me quote them. I, I won't mention them now. I don't want to smear them. But e you got to be careful in the polls. 
All of this is to say the moral of the story, if I haven't bored you to death of the polling, is I'm perfectly happy to talk about the polls. I am perfectly happy to tell you where people are stacking up in the polls. And I am perfectly happy to call out bad pollsters. But what I don't want to do is what so much of the media does is to steer the content of this program based on polling. But more than that, I want you to get it out of your head that the polling is wrong. I'll tell you when there's a bad poll, and I'll tell you when I disagree with the poll. But don't tell me that the polling is wrong because the polling actually has done a very good job. I mean, even, for example, in uh, New Hampshire with the Democratic primary, we knew that Amy Klobuchar was skyrocketing into third place because of the polling. We knew Bernie Sanders was going to win because of the polling. We knew Joe Biden was going to fall potentially to fifth place because of the polling. The polling was not wrong. Don't tell yourself the polling is wrong. When you see the polls that you don't like because it has the president doing poorly, don't tell yourself the polling is wrong because you love the president, therefore the president must be winning. Actually, look at the polls critically, but also with some knowledge that, okay, this poll says the president's doing poorly, but it's a national poll of registered voters. That tends to lean by 3% to the Democrats, and we got to pay attention to the swing states because the national vote doesn't matter. Oh, here's swing state polling that has the president tied with the Democrats. Okay, I can believe this poll. This poll seems to be credible because it is of the swing states. That matters. Let's educate ourselves about the polling instead of screaming about it, but let's not shape our entire coverage based on the polling. And that's something awful that so much of the media is doing these days. All right. I promise this will be the end of it. And I'll take your phone calls as well. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you go to realclearpolitics.com and you look to the right side, you'll get their polling average of of where the candidates are. Uh, And I pulled up two different polls and I want to read you the methodology. This is why I hate Emerson College polling. Uh, I, I never, ever rely on Emerson College polling on this program, and let me read you why. This, this is how Emerson College describes its uh, methodology. Data was collected using both an interactive voice response system, that means a robocall, of landline-only phones. So they didn't call cell phones. They only called landlines. And they used an interactive voice response system, meaning they used a robocall. They didn't use a live operator. People are more likely to actually pay attention to live operators than to robocalls. But that's not only – let me read you the full sentence. Data was collected using both an interactive voice response system of landline-only phones and an online panel provided by Amazon Turk. What is Amazon Turk? Amazon Turk is a system where you can go on and say, hey, I got a job I need somebody to do. And people will bid on it on Amazon and say, I'll do the work. So a bunch of people bid on doing polling for Emerson College who may have no background in polling. So random Joe on the Internet decided they were going to do Emerson College's polling for they didn't even use students at a call screening program at a call facility they used Amazon Turk they bid it out to random people at minimum wage on Amazon don't believe Emerson polling now contrast that with ABC News Here's the ABC News Washington Post methodology. was conducted by landline and cellular telephones in English and Spanish among a random national sample of 1,066 adults 
Results have a margin of error of 3.5%, including the design effect. Partisan divisions are 29 Democrat, 25 Republican, 37 Independent, which is a actually a very good balanced skew uh, for how people respond to this. So, so, in other words, ABC News used actual live operators— and they called people in English and in Spanish, and they did cell phones and landlines, meaning ABC has a fairly accurate polling sample that shows that Sanders is, and Bloomberg are on the rise and Biden is falling. And there's a big degree of, of who is electable and who is not. Uh, that matters. OK, when we come back, we can shift gears now. Uh, William Barr threatening to resign. Man, the media is having a field day over Bernie Sanders health. Uh, they want his medical records, and he says nothing coming, and uh, that, that's all the media wants to talk about today is Bernie Sanders' medical records, and when are they coming out? Will they come out? Anybody going to release them? And nothing doing from, from his campaign. They're out attacking Mike Bloomberg, who apparently has an irregular heartbeat, uh, trying to raise the profile of that. Now, this you need to understand, this is not coordinated. There are a lot of people out there today saying, oh, this is all coordinated stuff. It, it's not actually coordinated. What happens is that the media has a herd mentality. And in the herd mentality, they all rush forward uh, with the same story. It, it, what happens is the it, typically... If you're savvy at politics, you understand that there's a herd mentality. You understand that the media is going to rush out and they're going to seize on something if all you got to do is 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 herd them properly. And good political uh, advisors can herd the media. And in herding the media, they, well, cause all sorts of problems for various candidates. And right now... It is happening to poor old Bernie Sanders. I mean, couldn't happen to a nicer guy, I guess you could say, that uh, the media is now out to get him on his health records. He had a heart attack on the campaign trail not too long ago, and now the media is saying, hey, when are you going to give us the rest of your medical records? And Bernie does not want to give his medical records, which makes you wonder, what is he hiding? And and that's what the media uh, presumption is there. Bernie must be hiding something bad about his medical records because he's not letting us know what's going on with his with his health. Well, it's not going to do them any good right now. He's not going to cough up anything else, uh, which is hilarious. That they they've <laughs> they're they're not asking they're they're not asking about the um about Donald Trump's tax records right now. They're too interested in Bernie Sanders' health uh, to be able to to actually get out there and, and ask any more about it. There, his his campaign advisor had a meltdown on CNN earlier with uh, John Berman who she was essentially making these wild claims that the media needed to be asking about Mike Bloomberg's health, not Bernie Sanders's health. And John Berman says, well, he hasn't had a heart attack on the campaign trail. And what was like, he's had multiple heart attacks and an irregular heartbeat. He actually hasn't had any heart attacks that anyone knows of. Maybe he has. Maybe he needs to release those medical records. Uh, but, man, the media out to get Bernie right now. You can't help but feel sympathetic to the Bernie campaign. They've come out, for example, and said that Fox News treats them better than MSNBC. And it's true. Fox News has treated them better than MSNBC because MSNBC really, really, really wants to win. They really, really, really are uh, to the left. And it is necessary for them to try to pick off Bernie Sanders so that they have a better shot in 2020 against the president. Now, it doesn't help Bernie Sanders when he has people out on the campaign trail uh, actively encouraging uh, socialism. We need to elect Bernie, and we 
we need a powerful socialist revolution to end all capitalist uh, exploitation and oppression. Yeah, that's not going to help Bernie Sanders a whole lot. Uh, neither is this. Colorado has a higher concentration of traditional energy workers than most states. Uh, you've called for a ban on fracking in 2025 and then a transition for those workers into other careers. Correct. We're talking about about 90,000 Coloradans and their families. How exactly do it work? Well, here's what the issue that we have. And let's be clear about it. People may disagree with me, but I will tell you what I think. What the scientists are now telling us is that climate change is an existential threat to this planet. And anyone who has eyes to see what's going on in Australia, what's literally going on in England today, for one of the worst storms they have ever experienced, the kind of drought, the kind of extreme weather disturbances that we are seeing understands scientists are right. We don't have a choice in this matter. If we are going to save this planet for our kids and future generations, we must, underline must, move away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. Now, having said that, I do understand that the workers here in Colorado and workers all over this country who are in the fossil fuel industry, they're not my enemy. You're looking at a guy who has the strongest lifetime pro-labor voting record in the United States Congress. Those workers are not my enemy. And that's why in the proposal that we have brought forth, there are billions, billions of dollars in a just transition to make sure that those workers have income for five years, job training, education, health care. So those workers are not our enemies. It's not their fault that climate change is threatening the planet. You know, the Democratic message these days increasingly is that uh, some people need to be unemployed for the greater good, particularly in the energy sector. Colorado has a massive amount of fracking. Uh, and while environmental activists in Colorado hate it, uh, it's employing a whole lot of people in Colorado who are okay with fracking and are okay with natural gas. And it's very interesting that it, you you would think that they would want to engage in fracking because of its environmental impact. It's actually it, it gets people off burning coal to keep their houses warm, among other things. But nope. Uh, not at all. They fundamentally are opposed, and in, in in being fundamentally opposed, they want to put people out of work. So you've got Bernie Sanders out there now. His his rallies are all about we need to have a socialist revolution and burn down the capitalist house, and also now we got to put people uh, out of work. We got to put people on the sidelines. And, um, yeah, that's not going to work well for the Democrats. You know, it, it really, it, it seems like they want to lose. You know, this is why, by the way, this is why incumbent presidents have an advantage. I mean, incumbency has a built-in advantage in addition to ballot placement in a lot of states. The incumbency with the president has, has an advantage in that you have a guy in the White House Regardless, uh, regardless of who that president is, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton. I mean, it, it actually is striking that George H.W. Bush lost re-election, having been the most popular president in American history for a time after the Iraq war. He wound up losing his election on the economy, and he and Jimmy Carter are kind of the anomalies on one-term presidents. 
most presidents win re-election. And the reason most presidents win re-election is because they are a unitary leader of a party who sets the message of the party, and the other party is squabbling over who's going to be the person to challenge that message. And now you got a guy like Bloomberg coming in who is urging people to get out of the race when he hasn't won a single primary or caucus yet. That's actually really impressive. I mean, the the just the the brazenness of the of the Bloomberg team to start encouraging people like Buttigieg and Klobuchar to get out of the election when they've won delegates and he hasn't even won a delegate. It's striking to see that that's happening. And yet that's where we are in this country. That's where we are with the Democrats right now. And I, I just I got to say it is it's really funny to me to to see the Democrats fighting over this. And again, they they don't have a unified they don't have unified candidacy. They don't have a unified campaign. Uh, they don't have a unified message about the only uni- unity the Democrats have right now is that if you're in the energy sector, you need to be fired. And, OK, I found this clip. I- I've been looking for this clip while I've been talking. Uh, this is the Bernie Sanders spokeswoman with John Berman on CNN this morning about Bloomberg. Let me see if I can get this fired up properly for you. Uh, my internet connection has suddenly gone flaky on me, but that's okay. Uh, I want to play this for you oh, so yeah, you can listen to this. In the fall. Do you think the American people deserve to know more about his health going forward? I think the American people deserve to know exactly. Uh, yeah, it cuts off. They, they, they need to know exactly. She Berman is asking her, don't people need to know more about Bernie Sanders' health condition and heart condition? And she equates it to a smear campaign and says that Bloomberg's had multiple heart attacks. As much as every other candidate has released in this race currently and historically. And what you're seeing right now is really reminiscent of some of the kind of smear, kind of a skepticism campaigns that have been run against a lot of different candidates in the past, um, questioning where they're from, um, aspects of their, uh, um, their, their lineage, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really telling, given that none of the same concern is being demonstrated for Michael Bloomberg, who's the same age as Bernie Sanders, who has suffered heart attacks in the past. Except he hasn't, at least none that we know of publicly. Man, this is turning nasty. See, that's the other issue here is that when you when the president is term limited. So let's go to 2024. You'll have a free for all on the Republican side and a free for all on the Democratic side if the president gets reelected, because you'll have to find a new Republican to be a new messenger for the party. And the Democrats will have to find someone to be a messenger for their party. And after two terms of a president, the nation tends to turn against the party that's held the White House for eight years. So that gives an advantage to the Democrats. But if Bernie Sanders is the nominee and Trump gets reelected, the recriminations within the Democratic Party are going to be brutal. Now, there will be a fight on the Republican side. You'll have the the Mike Pence, Nikki Haley fight, uh, undoubtedly. I suspect Haley and Pence will, will both run and there will be others who get into the race. And I, I personally, I think a Pence Haley ticket or a Haley Pence ticket would be awesome. I love them both. They're both actually personal friends. But holy cow, on the Democratic side, if Bernie is the nominee now and loses, the recriminations on the Democratic side are going to be phenomenal to watch. I mean, it's going to be impressive. It's going to be like the Chinese Cultural Revolution within the Democratic Party. Because you'll have the people who will blame, you'll have the Bernie bros 
who blamed the Democratic Party for sabotaging Bernie. I mean, th- this this is already growing. This is why you're hearing so many people on Fox talk positively and kindly about Bernie right now. They're trying to sow the discord. This is intentional on the part of the talking heads at Fox right now and the president to play up Bernie and, and, and say nice things about Bernie because they understand that in 2016, the president benefited by Bernie bros being so mad at the Democrats that they sat home. Well, if Bernie's the nominee in 2020... And he loses, those Bernie bros are going to blame the Democratic Party. In the same way that you have Republicans who who still blame the party for flubbing and giving Donald Trump the nomination. I mean, there's still an undercurrent within the Republican Party that, that still hates the president. They just won't publicly acknowledge it. You're going to have this in the Democratic Party, and it'll be open warfare. It's going to be delightful to see. But here's the thing. This is what, what's calling to me. And, and I said uh, before we got into this hour, I wanted to talk about William Barr and his threat to resignation. I, I do want to get there. And the reason I started here beyond that is this. The media will never pay attention to the growing fractures and civil war within the Democratic Party in the same way, in, in, in completely opposite to how they pay attention to every fight within the Republican Party and play it up as if it is the beginning of the end of the Republican Party. And it is because the media is so to the left that they can't see it within the Democratic Party. They don't want to see it within the Democratic Party. They think everything is hunky-dory within the Democratic Party. There really is a myopia from the media when it comes to covering uh, the internal squabbling of the Democratic Party. And most of the people they rely on as experts and analysts tend to be on the left as well. There's actually data out there today that shows that your average reporter right now, average political reporter in this country, is somewhere between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders in terms of their political views. So they see the squabbling of the Democratic Party pulling it towards Bernie Sanders as a net positive. And so they're likely to ignore it. On the Republican side, they play up all of these things, including the William Barr soap opera and whether or not he's going to resign as attorney general, which we will get to, I promise, as soon as we come back. So what actually is going on at the Department of Justice? There seems to be a lot of squabbling, and it goes back to the interview that um, that William Barr had with ABC News where he blew up about the president's tweets that he's not going to be bullied by anybody. The Washington Post and others running these stories. Attorney General William Barr has told people close to President Donald Trump inside and outside the White House that he's considering quitting over Trump's tweets about Justice Department investigations, three administration officials said, foreshadowing a possible confrontation between the president and his attorney general over the independence of the Justice Department. So far, Trump has defied Barr's requests, both public and private, to keep quiet on matters of federal law enforcement. It was not immediately clear Tuesday whether Barr had made his posture known directly to Trump. The administration officials said Barr seemed to be sharing his position with advisors in hopes the president would get the message that he should stop weighing in publicly on the Justice Department's ongoing criminal investigations. He has his limits, said one person familiar with Barr's thinking, speaking on conditions of anonymity like others to discuss uh, internal deliberations. Late last week, Barr publicly warned the president in a remarkable interview with ABC News that his tweets about Justice Department cases makes it impossible for me to do my job. Trump, the White House official said, 
is not entirely receptive to calls to change his behavior, and he's told those around him he's not going to stop tweeting about the DOJ. They said Trump sees highlighting FBI and Justice Department misconduct as a good political message. The standoff between Trump and Barr intensified Tuesday when Trump declared in a string of early morning tweets that he might sue those involved in the special counsel's investigation into his 2016 campaign and suggested that Roger Stone, his friend convicted of lying to Congress in that probe, deserved a new trial. I got thoughts. I got thoughts. I got thoughts. So let me explain to you how William Barr has operated, much to the chagrin of Democrats. And and this you need to understand this because this actually is relevant and helpful, I think. There are a lot of Democrats who publicly condemn William Barr, who publicly criticize William Barr, who publicly blast William Barr as, as being too Trumpy, as being the president's manservant. I mean, my goodness, you had Eric Holder call himself uh, Barack Obama's wingman, and the press gave him a pass on that. But on William Barr, nope, can't give him a pass. The double standard is, is, is apparent there. But William Barr has managed this president masterfully. The president is convinced there's a conspiracy out to get him. What does William Barr do? He gets one of the highly respected U.S. attorneys, the U.S. attorney of Connecticut, to begin an outside investigation into who did what to whom and was there anything done. And the president and the president's supporters, you hear this all the time. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. We're going to get this. We're going to get this report. It's going to tell us exactly what we want. Except we know it would like that the Department of Justice Inspector General report it didn't. And this probably isn't either. But in the meantime, it placates the president and his supporters, all of whom get to say, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. I mean, how many times did you hear people on, on the nighttime shows on Fox tell you that Andrew McCabe was going to be indicted? It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It's go, oh, oh, no, it's not. And and so now what they got to do is they got to scream about the Department of Justice. The problem is when you scream about the Department of Justice and this stuff, William Barr is in charge of it. And William Barr is the adult in the room. And the Democrats who publicly mouth breathe against him are actually okay with him because they know he's the adult in the room. They know he's the grown-up in the room. They know he's the guy who can navigate the Trump administration, and he's done it masterfully. He gives the president much of what the president wants up to a point and no further. Well, the problem for William Barr now is that the president has become unhappy. The president is unhappy with the decisions of the Department of Justice. The president listens to the overnight shows on Fox where the the blue-haired pundits who haven't been in politics in 30 years but still pretend to be plugged in tell everyone the way the world works and half of what they say is wrong. But the president believes it because he knows these people. They've hung out with him at Mar-a-Lago. They come on these shows and they tell you – I got to tell you – Half these people who are on the overnight shows on Fox as political consultants haven't run a campaign since the Reagan administration, if at all. And even then, they were probably licking stamps in a back room. And yet they're given extraordinary clout, and the president believes them, and they concoct these elaborate conspiracy theories that some of you believe, too. I mean, I I get people in church mad at me. For, for some of the things that I say on this radio program, uh, because I dismiss, oh, well, you know what so-and-so said on Fox the other night? Yeah, I know what so-and-so said on Fox the other night. He's a grifter making money off you people, and he hadn't worked on a campaign or in politics in 40 years. Nobody wants him. And yet he gets on some Fox show, and everybody believes the, uh, the kook. 
And the president does too. And so he gets spun up about stuff, and William Barr knows it. William Barr anticipates it. William Barr spends a lot of time figuring out what they're talking about on Fox so that he can preemptively anticipate the president's mood and what the president wants, and he directs things in that way, and the media bashes him, and the media says he's a Trump flunky. Frankly, frankly, it helps him to be portrayed as a Trump flunky in the national press because it earns the president's trust. But at this point, Barr can't do his job And he's signaling to the president he's going to quit if something doesn't change. The president cannot afford to have this attorney general quit. He's too competent and too good and knows how to navigate things on the president's behalf more so than Jeff Sessions ever could. The president needs to leave William Barr alone and let him work for the president without all the tweets blowing up the Justice Department. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you pay attention to online chatter, you no doubt are aware of Google and its um, less than friendly treatment of conservatives these days on on YouTube and the like, you know, there's this this random weird thing on on like YouTube, for example. I, I put up this program typically when I'm live streaming. I'm not live streaming today because I'm actually in Atlanta. We don't have the setup, but they I, I get notes on occasion that oh, we we can't monetize this, or or something gets published at the resurgent about guns, and oh, that's a that's a problem. Uh, increasingly. Um, increasingly skeptical of of Google's cloud. And, you know, I I tend to be more favorable towards uh, tech companies than a lot of my friends in the conservative movement these days. And I've Google, for example, and Facebook and others have sponsored the Resurgent Conference this past year. And and I'm still thinking Google needs to be called out on some of its behavior uh, towards conservatives and not just towards conservatives, towards other corporations. They for a company that says don't be evil. Uh, it, it, that's their motto. I mean, the default is a suggestion to them that I, I. why do you have to tell people at Google not to be evil? Raises concerns. Well, there's a big lawsuit uh, before the Supreme Court regarding Google and my friend Rachel Bovard. Now, Rachel, did I see the other? You're engaged now, correct? <laughs> that's right. It's about three weeks old, but yes. Awesome. Congratulations. Now, it, it, tell folks uh, before we, we really dive into Google about the Internet Accountability Project. Yeah, so the Internet Accountability Project, we started about four months ago, and we're a group of conservatives that are just worried about big tech and what it's doing to our society. But also from a policy perspective, you know, should these dominant corporations be allowed this limitless accountability to engage uh, in bad acts, both from a market perspective, but to allow this sort of sexual exploitation, terrorism, all these things to flourish online without a policy response. And so we're we're committed to developing a, a discussion about that on the right. Uh, we don't know what the policy outcomes are, to be honest, but we think the right should be talking about it more than they are. Well, yeah, I think so, too. And, and I'm... Google concerns me more than any other tech company other than potentially Twitter, but but Google more so just because it is so dominant. And we have had Google executives in the past brag about their ability to shape the algorithm. And just by their own logic with the Google algorithm, if you have activists at Google who believe you need a diverse group of people to help form the algorithm that gets us data so it's more representative of people, and yet they hate conservatives. That seems to be an admission against interest that they can downplay conservative results in their algorithm if if they believe they can uh, amplify results by having a diverse group of people shape the algorithm. (laughs) 
That's right. And, you know, Google has for a long time hid behind this lie, to be honest, that they don't moderate content, that they don't, uh, you know, manipulate their search results, that all of this is the result of, you know, no humans are involved. But reporting from the Wall Street Journal, they put out an 8,000 word piece over the summer that shows the opposite, that shows that Google actually does modify search terms around really politically contentious issues like immigration and abortion. Um, They do respond to corporate interests who want search results to come out a certain way. So these are private companies who are profiting off off of our data and have almost limitless accountability because of the sweetheart deal they have with the government. And that's in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. People pretend that the government is involved with it is not involved with tech, but actually they do have a very sweet deal with the government protects them from liability, from lawsuits, from users. And increasingly, these companies have become so big that the, you know, the ability to opt out isn't there anymore. We simply can't not use Google because Google's tracking you even if you're not using their services. They're on the top 80% of websites that we visit. I mean, they have data on you even if you're not using Google. Now, let's get into this issue before the Supreme Court. Google versus Oracle. What exactly is the, the genesis of this lawsuit before the court? So this lawsuit is very important because it gets at a pattern of behavior that Google has engaged in to become market dominant. And it's this idea that they go after small companies and they just steal their intellectual property and they say, oh, you want it back? Okay, come sue us. And most companies, as you might imagine, cannot sustain decade-long million-dollar lawsuits against Google, who has limitless resources. Um, And so Oracle, who's a software developer, is the only one that's been able to sustain this because they're pretty big as well. And so they've been embroiled in decades-long litigation over this this allegation that Google stole 11,500 lines of code from Oracle to build its Android mobile system. And obviously, that's Google's phone is the Android. Mm -hmm. Now, Google argues that it's fair use, that under copyright, well, we can we can borrow your IP, and if we sufficiently transform it, uh, it's fair use. We shouldn't have to pay you for it. But Oracle says, well, not so fast. You were trying to pay us for it. You were trying to license it. The negotiations were ongoing. They fell apart. And as soon as Oracle walked away from the table, Google swiped that IP and then claimed it to be fair use. So that's the real crux of the issue uh, going ahead for before the Supreme Court. Should Google be allowed to just steal IP from its competitors instead of paying for it? Now, you guys have filed a brief in the Supreme Court on behalf of Oracle. What's your uh, what's your take as the Internet Accountability Project on it? Well, our argument is simply that there is a distinction between uh, fair use, which should be allowed, right, because that's a big driver of innovation in the tech space and theft. There's a distinction between the two. And Google doesn't want to make that distinction. And and as IAP, we have come out and said, look, you can't, we've seen this pattern of behavior from Google before. Sonos, the, the speaker company, is just the latest uh, group to sue Google over this. They said they've done the exact same thing to, that they did to Oracle. They swiped their uh, speaker system and, and used it in Google Home without paying them for it. And so Google should not be allowed to bully and cheat and steal its way into market dominance. That is not a free market in tech. And so we're coming in on the side of Oracle to say, please, Supreme Court, put some parameters around what Google can do. Give them some accountability to allow these small innovators to flourish, because that's what makes a true free market in tech. Now, as we head into 2020, I, I, I have a lot of concerns, given just a lot of the chatter that came out of Google after 2016, that they may not be honest brokers in search when it comes to 2020 and, and things online. And do you guys have any thoughts on that already? Or is there some way to I mean, I assume the worry is legitimate, but what do you do in response to the worry? 
I think it is a really legitimate concern because, you know, they, Google and Facebook and others have shown they aren't trusted in this space. They have they're you know, they've been caught on video saying they they don't want to allow another Donald Trump. I mean, they are very politically motivated um, it, towards the outcome of the next election. And, you know, I don't think that there is going to be a quick fix to that, because, again, you don't have another option at this point. Google tells you what the news is to some extent, their closest competitor has 2% of the market share. And so, you know, more and more, they are the purveyors of what we see as news and what we think of as speech. And so from a long-term perspective, this demands some kind of policy response. Uh, We don't know exactly what it is. The left obviously has already decided, right? They don't wait for fact patterns. They just make up their mind. Elizabeth Warren has already said, break them up and censor them and all these things. But on the right, we say no, trust but verify. We would like to see an investigation done and see where the facts lead. And so we're supportive of what um, President Trump's DOJ is doing and taking an antitrust look at some of these companies to say, do they just have too much market power over our speech and over our news. And so we are very supportive of those efforts. 50 state attorneys general are also taking a look at Google's anti-competitive conduct. And we think that's important as well. So we want to wait and see what the facts say, but we do think the investigation is warranted. Now, what is your thinking uh, on this case before the Supreme Court? I I mean, obviously, when when is the hearing? And I mean, how, how, where, what am I? I'm sorry, Rachel. I'm, I'm, I, my, I'm, I've got so many questions that I want to ask, and they're all flooding together at one time. Uh, the appeal to the Supreme Court, who won at the appellate level, and what's the thinking as it goes to the Supreme Court? So Oracle has won at the appellate level. And, you know, it's tough to say, you know, as uh, it's tough to say where the Supreme Court will end up on this. And But what's interesting, when you look at Google's brief, they they are relying on the fact that they can confuse the justices. They're making the case that, oh, this is too complicated. You know, you're not going to understand what we're doing here. And this is the same attitude that that Google has taken before Congress. Um, Don't worry about what's going on here. You're all too dumb to understand this. It's basically the thrust of a lot of Google's arguments. And they're taking that same approach to to the Supreme Court. Now, I suspect the justices will not look favorably upon that. You know, they will, they, that's, it's a very arrogant way of approaching them and they tend not to respond well to that. Um, but again, I think what's particularly damning for Google in this case as well, and they have not responded to it, is the allegation that's based in fact that Oracle's making that they were trying to license this from Oracle. They recognized it had commercial value. Um, and when it broke down, they simply stole it and then claimed that it was, it was fair use. And so I think that's gonna be the real crux of this issue. Um, and, you know, I'm hopeful the Supreme Court hears it fairly. Uh, I think they will, you know, but Google has, is, again, um, desperately trying to keep its gravy train going of just stealing IP. So they're motivated to make it work for them. Yeah. yeah you know, look, I, I'm a big believer in, in the free market and, and I'm not as skeptical of, of Facebook, uh, frankly, as, as a lot of my friends on the right are. I, I'm, I continue to be deeply skeptical of Google. And it just seems like. When, as you mentioned, their nearest competitor has like two, three percent of the market share in search, that Google really is a monopoly, whether we want to believe it is or not. And its acquisition of so much data, I mean, to its credit, they were smart. They got in early with libraries and started scanning books and building algorithms and stuff. But it, it seems like the, the the little scrappy search company increasingly isn't it's not little, it's it's not scrappy and, and having a model of, of don't be evil, it seems like they're doing more and more stuff that suggests maybe they actually are. <laughs> well, they dropped that that slogan, by the way, the oh, don't that's be true. evil slogan. Yeah. They just got rid of it because they were like, Well, it's too too cumbersome for us to abide by. <laughs> so they got rid of it. <laughs> but to your point, it's a very difficult 
case to make that there is still a free market in search. And part of that is the way algorithms work. You, they, someone probably has developed a better algorithm than Google, but they're never going to be able to make it operative because of Google's data dominance. Data is what makes algorithms effective. It's what makes them, um, you know, good at what they do in, in defining search categories and all these things. Bing is never going to be able to compete with Google, despite the fact that it had billions of dollars poured into it, some of the best minds in tech. Everything that we say in a free market should allow you to compete. They don't have the data dominance, so they're just going to constantly be shoved to the side, and they're never going to be Google's near-peer competitor. And that's, I think, something worth looking at when you consider the fact that Google tells us what the news is. Google tells us, you know, they, they claim to be objective search results, even though we know they're not, and increasingly they shape our political discourse. So is there a policy response to that? That's something I think we should be able to talk about. Yeah, and, and I don't know that I've got the answer to it, but I definitely agree with you. This this is a conversation that, that needs to be had because I'm, I'm increasingly skeptical of not just the way Google openly treats conservatives and, and, and Twitter too, frankly, um, but with Google – a access to information kind of is the new fight these days, and they tend to control the access to the information. And if they're blocking searches, and I think there's a lot of evidence out there that they are shaping search, then uh, suddenly you don't have a free market of information. You've got a Google market of information. And that, I think, should terrify all of us, not just because of the liberal bias, but because who wants to live in a world where a corporation gets to decide what's news uh, and, and what you can say and who sees it? Well, I mean, Mike Bloomberg, he, that's what he wants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for stopping by and, and talking about this. It, it certainly is a big issue. Please, please uh, keep me posted on this. I'm, I'm actually fascinated to see if the Supreme Court will rebuke Google, and, and I think they need to in this case, and hopefully they will. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Rachel Bovard, she is Rachel is with the Internet Accountability Project in Washington, D.C. Uh, and, you know, we don't see eye to eye on, on, on everything, but on, on Google we do. I, for example, with a lot of my conservative friends, uh, and, and just full disclosure, Google and Facebook have both sponsored uh, my resurgent conference this past year. And I've got good relationships with both companies, but I'm way more skeptical of Google than I am Facebook. And the reason is because I, I think Zuckerberg, when you see his his statements this past year, he's been standing up to the left a lot. Uh, yeah, have they shut down a couple of bad actors on the right? Yes, but they were bad actors. Uh, but I mean, think of the withering criticism towards Facebook over leaving up that Nancy Pelosi video, uh, allowing the president to run his ads. They've stood up to the media, the media constantly bullying uh, Facebook. Facebook is the, the only tech company out there that's holding the line on free speech. Google and Twitter and the like are folding reliably towards the left, and that really is problematic. Uh, I use Google, too, although I'm, I'm increasingly using DuckDuckGo, but the fact of the matter is Google searches do tend to be better searches. There is a problem, though. We have seen Google employees in the past suggest they can shape what is shown on the first page of a Google search. And if they can do that, given how reliably progressive they are, Google has the power to censor information they don't want us to see. And we should be concerned that a private corporation controlled by progressive activists is shaping the information that you and I can see. I'm not willing to say they're a public utility, and I'm not willing to say they need to be broken up, but I am willing to say that the government certainly has a role in looking into it to make sure they're not playing partisan favorites. And increasingly, there's not just evidence, but Google employees in their own words suggesting there is a bias there. 
thanks again for the well wishes and the prayers with my wife. The um, the, the great uh, news, the scans came back fine. So if you weren't here, the reason I wasn't here yesterday, my, my wife had her oncology scans yesterday and I... I so I wasn't actually able to go to the doctor with her. I was supposed to get the kids, and we were going to meet her right after the scans in Atlanta. The kids had off yesterday, and then I completely screwed up the the calendar and the schedule, and we weren't actually able to meet her for lunch yesterday, which, you know, I, I got to say I'm kind of glad about. I'm not glad that I, I screwed everything up, but there was a terrible wreck uh, on the southbound uh, 75 lanes headed back to Macon from Atlanta yesterday. And had I not screwed up, and uh, we did go up and were able to everybody get together for lunch, she and the kids would have been stuck headed southbound during a horrible rainstorm with an 18-wheeler flipped over on the interstate. So I feel a little bit better, but still, I, I screwed it all up yesterday. I, but, it, you know, my, my brain doesn't work uh, when she has her scans. Um, and... It, in any event, uh, the, the scans were good, thankfully. So she's got a – it's a genetic form of cancer, and she's got tumors in her lungs. They're very small, like 5 millimeters or less, but there are a lot of them. Uh, they can't extract them, and she can't get rid of them, but this medicine she's on keeps them from growing, and she goes in every three months for a scan to make sure the medicine is still working, and thankfully the medicine is still working. So thanks very much for the prayers. I So I'm in Atlanta today. Uh, in in the studio here in Atlanta and went by Panera Bread. I, I got a weakness for the spinach bacon souffles at Panera Bread. Don't look at the calorie count. Just just go with them. They're, they're incredible. Um, you consume your entire calories for the day in one souffle. They're, they're incredible. They really are. And they sell out fast. And I went over this morning to the Panera Bread near my hotel uh, to get one and a cup of coffee. And... I'm sitting there doing the outline for the show, and I'm listening to this um, these three people who are sitting by me. They're Democrats, and they're talking about the presidential race. And one of them says, a woman says that Bloomberg is just as racist as the president. And then the other one uh, is very down on Bernie Sanders that he doesn't have what it takes to get elected. And they're just beside themselves with the state of play in the Democratic Party right now. It's actually kind of funny. But I got to tell you, it reminds me a lot of the conversations about Trump and the Republicans in 2016. There are so many people. I get emails all the time now from people say, hey, shouldn't we cross over? In fact, my sister the other day texted me and said, hey, so I'm thinking that I should go vote for Bernie in, in my state primary. It's like, no, stay stay out of the Democratic primary. Let the Democrats pick their candidates themselves. There's no reason for you to shape it for them. Remember, Democrats crossed over into the Republican primary in 2016 to support Donald Trump. There's plenty of data that Democrats helped Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's on the record. There have been books written about how the Clinton team decided they would do what they could to try to convince Republicans that they should go for Donald Trump, that Donald Trump would be the easiest Republican to beat. There was so much dirt on him, so much oppo on him. Let's help him get the nomination. And they did. And look what happened. I tell Republicans all the time, there's no reason for you to cross over into the Democratic primary. I mean, what, what, one of the things you learn in politics is when your opponent is, is beating himself up, uh, stay out of the way and let him. The Democrats are having the, this massive fight on their side right now over who the nominee should be. Stay out of it and let them have this fight. By the way, 
it looks like on the 538 estimates, Bernie Sanders is going to run away with delegates on Super Tuesday. He'll have 45% of the delegates locked in. Now, that's not good enough for him. I'm sure you're about to start hearing the, the revered talk in the media of, there's going to be a brokered convention. There's not going to be a broker. I, you know, okay. I shouldn't. I shouldn't say never. The, it could happen. The odds are it's not going to happen. Uh, but the odds are right now, as I've said, inordinate numbers of times now, because the Democrat primaries are all proportional. If Bernie keeps winning or coming close, he's going to keep racking up delegates, and even Bloomberg won't be able to compete against that. Remember, the Democrats used to have super delegates. The, the adults in the room could come in and, and overrule the voters. They can't do that now. Bernie Sanders had the Democrats get rid of the superdelegates. Now, when we come back, we got the Trump pardons and we got the coronavirus, but I want to talk about the Boy Scouts of America. When we come back, they have filed for bankruptcy now, the beginning of the end for a once-storied organization. I'm scrolling through Instagram as I begin the program. Why? Because I can and I see all these beautiful – so I, I – I, welcome, by the way. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Everybody thinks I'm crazy, but I have had in my head since I was a kid my house. And one day uh, when I win the lottery – uh, I'm going to build my house. I'm going to there. There's land near me in Monroe County. Uh, it is um, several hundred acres. I'm tired of having neighbors. I love my neighbors. I love my current neighbors. Some of my neighbors are listening right now. I love you all. Uh, but you all know that we've had to have security at our house, and you all know the random people who come riding down the road to gawk that oh. Eric Erickson lives there. One day I want a large tract of land uh, with great big walls around it um, and no neighbors and lots of guns. And I can go out in my backyard and shoot guns. But uh, so I, I've got my house built in my head. But I constantly I go through Instagram and I follow all these architects and their beautiful layouts and stuff. And I see these elaborate outdoor kitchen areas and outdoor dining areas. And they're beautiful. And then I think I live in Macon, Georgia. Three months out of the year, it will be yellow. It'll be caked in pollen. It'll be gross. Why would I want to? I, I love the idea of having an outdoor kitchen and an outdoor dining and living area. And then I just think, but I'll have to like put it under sheets of tarp and, and plastic for three months out of the year because of the pollen. It'll be gross. We've got a, a, a bed swing on our front porch. My, my wife has a friend whose husband made this and it's like a twin bed swing and and we've had trouble mounting and had to build a frame for it but we hardly ever use it because you sit down on it and puffs of yellow uh come up from it we we, we didn't think <laughs> we didn't think that through and it's great when you can use it but my goodness the pollen and even I I digress that I I'm sure you didn't tune in for my discussions on outdoor kitchens and pollen today we can do that as a as a separate podcast for the show I want to talk about the Boy Scouts. My dad, for years, was a fundraiser for the Boy Scouts. Uh, I never made it to Eagle Scout. Uh, we actually moved back from Dubai. I, I was in what we you did the Cub Scouts, and then you go to the Weeblos, and then you get into the Boy Scouts, and I did. And then we moved back from Dubai, and I, I didn't do Scouts when we came back to the United States. Uh, shy kid, didn't know anybody, uh, wasn't going to go randomly do it with people. I, I had no idea who they were. 
Uh, and so I didn't become an Eagle Scout. Uh, I occasionally get notes from parents whose kids are becoming Eagle Scouts, and they listen to the show, and they ask me to show up at events or, or send notes, and I, I do obligingly. I'm a big fan of the Scouts. But it's been heartbreaking in the last number of years to see the worldly collapse of the Boy Scouts of America. And there are people on the right underplaying the scandal, and we should not. The primary reason that the Boy Scouts are facing bankruptcy now is because of the weight of sexual abuse scandals of young men and scoutmasters, and including now it appears that in more than one circumstance, uh, very much like the situation with the Catholic Church, a Boy Scout leaders knew that someone was potentially a pedophile or abusive and just rearranged their position but did not uh, completely prohibit them from interacting with the young men and the boys in the Scouts, and this is doing them in. There is a serious lack of trust. We should not undermine that. We should, we should not distract from that. That is a primary cause of their bankruptcy. But there is another primary cause of their bankruptcy. You can have multiple primary causes. Same way you can have three primary colors, you can have multiple primary reasons for a bankruptcy. Another is that the Boy Scouts, with their Fortune 500 leadership, chose to align themselves with the world and reject their faith-based roots. And in rejecting their faith-based roots, in allowing in girls to the Boy Scouts, in getting rid of their their faith-based creeds, in allowing in not just gay scoutmasters, but gay Boy Scouts and now transgendered scouts and the like, uh, the, the Mormon Church, the Latter-day Saints, were the last major faith-based proponents of the scouts, and they pulled the plug on their support for the scouts. It used to be if you were in a in a Mormon church and you were a boy, you were in the Boy Scouts. It was a big part of scouting. And no more. Uh, the, the Mormons had enough, and, and I don't blame them. Uh, a lot of uh, Protestant evangelical churches in the last few years, they left first. The, the Mormons gave them the benefit of the doubt, and uh, the, the Christian churches bolted. And they, the scouts have been floundering. And the way the scouts responded was not to go back to their roots, but to go more into the world. They started allowing girls into the Boy Scouts. The Girl Scouts got mad at the Boy Scouts for doing that. They wanted to build their numbers up with girls, not just boys. They wanted to get rid of the faith-based aspects of scouting. Uh, it, it was bad enough in, in many cases that they had uh, gay scoutmasters come in uh, in an organization that had been faith-based filled with evangelical Christians who believe homosexuality is a sin. And they drew the line at having gay scouts, but they could have the gay scoutmasters and then allowing the gay scouts and the transgender scouts. And uh, what do the Boy Scouts even stand for? I'm, I'm sorry, the word boy in Boy Scout means something. And they abandoned their core mission, and inside their core mission were allowing people to do abusive things. As much as it pains me to say they deserve what they're getting. It's sad to see. It's disappointing to see. But years ago, when the scouts decided to embrace worldliness, I wrote that this was the inevitable outcome. And it was. It was predictable years ago 
the Boy Scouts of America had a winning Supreme Court decision on their side that allowed them to be a faith-based organization that is exclusive to boys and meet in the public square. The Supreme Court ruled there there was a movement among schools in this country to shut the Boy Scouts out of public schools and, and places because they were discriminatory, they were bigoted, uh, you name it, they were homophobic. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't punish the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts are protected. They're allowed to do this. They're allowed to operate as a faith-based organization, and they're allowed to have access to the public square. They're allowed to have access to the public school. But the Boy Scouts did something along the way. The Boy Scouts for years have put increasingly in charge of the Boy Scouts members of the Fortune 500. Rex Tillerson, President Trump's Secretary of State, one of the knocks on him has been he was one of the chief uh, advocates of the Scouts becoming more worldly when he was in charge of the Scouts as, as on their executive board. And there are others as well who, uh, on their executive board, of Fortune 500 CEOs and, and corporate bosses who are part of the world and love the world and, and are engaged in worldliness. And they wanted the Boy Scouts to become more like the world. They didn't like having to defend the Scouts in their circle of friends. When they would go to their Episcopalian church or, or their, their country club surrounded by their progressive friends, these members of the Fortune 500 come to, oh, we, 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 we got to apologize for being connected to the Scouts. The Scouts are a bigoted organization. And so now they're in decline. The, the You know, what's so interesting here is uh, the Boy Scouts' trajectory charts very much the trajectory of the Episcopal Church in America. You know, the Episcopal Church in America used to be considered the Republican Party at prayer. That's what it was referred to at the turn of the 20th century. And the Episcopal Church increasingly has become so worldly, it's not really even a Christian organization anymore. It is, it's the Episcopal Church, and, and Episcopalianism is increasingly devoid of actual Christianity. They, they use the Bible as a self-help manual where it, it's, it's relevant, but otherwise they redact large portions of it uh, in the advance of, of their Episcopal faith. Uh, you had the, the former bishop of the Episcopal Church accused uh, Paul, the apostle, of uh, being abusive to women because he dared to cast a demon out of a woman. And and she explained that this woman was making income off of this possession. And Paul uh, cast out the demon and it was abusive to the woman. I'm not making that up, by the way. She really did. And this was the head of the Episcopal Church. This is the same head of the Episcopal Church that said they would rather hand over uh, Episcopal buildings to Muslims than to Anglicans who didn't embrace gay marriage. I'm not making that up either. And as the Episcopal Church embraced worldliness, the Episcopal Church numbers began to decline. That's kind of the fight within the Methodist Church right now. Uh, as the Methodist Church embraces worldliness, in particular gay marriage and gay priests or, or, or gay, gay ministers, uh, the, you're seeing people leave the Methodist Church. This embrace of worldliness when you've got a faith-based purpose. And listen, I, I, I don't care fundamentally right now for purpose of this conversation what your position is on, on gay marriage, homosexuality, and the like. That's not my point here. Uh, but my point is when you have a book, let's call it the Bible, and the Bible says something very explicitly, not just in the Old Testament but in the New Testament as well, and you decide to redact out the parts you don't like, increasingly those who take it seriously decide you're not very serious, and they go away, and you have a marketing problem. 
when the Episcopal Church essentially redacts parts of Scripture because it finds them offensive and can't use them anymore and tells people, come, why go to the Episcopal Church offering you self-help when there are plenty of other places that offer you self-help as well that make you feel good about yourself and you don't have to get up in the morning on a Sunday and go to church? You can stay out all night having a party with your friends, drinking, uh, doing whatever, and then Sunday morning sleep in. You felt great Saturday night. Why do you need to go have the priest make you feel good on Sunday morning when he's not even going to take his faith seriously? And that's the problem with the Boy Scouts. It's a branding aspect there, too. In addition to the abuse and everything else, you, you had a, 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 a movement that people considered godly and grounded in faith, and they decided they needed to be popular with the world because the Fortune 500 executives who sit on the executive board, they didn't like going to their country club and getting tough questions. It's like the people who vote for Trump. You don't want to go. you got to whisper that you vote for Trump. These these executives couldn't whisper that they were on the board of the Boy Scouts because it was well known. So they had to change the Scouts because the Scouts needed to be liked. And what happened? They didn't know their market. Their market was people they don't associate with. The market for the Boy Scouts were evangelical Christians and Mormons. And it doesn't do you a lot of good to take an organization known for its faith and turn it into something not known for its faith, to take an organization branded as the Boy Scouts and allow girls into the organization. And so they've crumbled. They've collapsed. It, it reminds I want to play you part of this conversation. Uh, it, it very much reminds me of this situation. The the worldly aspect now of uh, transgender sports and the increasing growth of having um, men play in women's sports. And if you listen to the world in general, it, it seems like that's a good thing. And increasingly, we are punishing girls who are having to compete with boys who've decided they're girls. This is a conversation with Elena Smith, one of three girls suing to prevent transgender athletes from competing in her sport. affect your future. Um, it makes me realize that like before I even run, I already lost and I won't be able to get a fair spot. Mm -hmm. And so it really makes me just want to get like a PR, a yeah. personal record. And so two, two of these, both of the transgenders, if I'm correct, have started um, their transitioning. We don't know that for sure. You don't know that, okay. So a lot, the big argument um, is that once you start hormone suppressors, it essentially makes you equal to that of a female athlete. So what do you guys think about that? A couple of responses to that. Number one, the policy in Connecticut doesn't even require any sort of treatment or therapy or whatever to compete in the girls' category. They can do so without limitation. But number two, I think both science and common sense tell us that you can never fully undo the physical advantages that males have over females. Um, studies show that male athletes have on average a 10 to 20 percent advantage over comparably trained female athletes. And that just can't be undone. You don't reduce their larger hearts and, and and uh, muscles and, and stronger lungs and all of those things. So as a result, you know, anytime you allow males to compete in the female category, females are disadvantaged. And right now in Connecticut, the males have taken 15 state championship titles away from deserving girls and set 17 new individual meet records. Wow. The boys are running in the girls' sports, and they're beating the girls. You know, boys and girls are different. The Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts are different. Uh, the problems that the Girl Scouts had uh, are exacerbated now by the Boy Scouts, who are helping sink the Girl Scouts in addition to the Boy Scouts. And the Boy Scouts decided they needed to be liked by the world, and so they did a bunch of worldly things uh, to compete. 
and it lost them their core audience in addition to their abusive behavior, which you can't understate. Uh, they lost people's trust, and they lost people's hearts, and they lost people's minds, and they're going to collapse now. They're going to go bankrupt. It very much is similar to uh, the people in this world who have been over backwards to embrace transgenderism, particularly in athletes, in athletics, girls' athletics, uh, because they want to be liked. Uh, the culture right now screams at them, you have to do this or you're a bigot. Well, I don't want to be a bigot, so let me do things that put girls at a disadvantage. It's all in the name of being liked by the world, and that only gets you so far. I realize I've reached that age where we all we all reach that age where you you read a headline is someone tragically killed and you don't even know who the person is uh, or something happens to someone a, a rapper pop smoke has been killed in a home invasion in the Hollywood Hills I don't know who the person is I, but man uh, sad, sad apparently an up and coming talent um and I, I increasingly I hear these stories like man i'm getting old and out of touch i guess but it's it's just not my thing uh, i'll tell you who is old and out of touch bernie sanders and it's going to be interesting to see him on the debate stage. They're having the big debate. We'll have lots of audio tomorrow. Note to my producer, go find yourself some Xanax because when you cut up audio in the morning, you're going to lose your business. Having Bloomberg and Bernie on the same stage, Elizabeth Warren uh, says she's coming out to get him. And, you know, the, the opposition research on Bloomberg just keeps dripping out. Democratic socialism. And the young people, I don't mean to knock young people, I wish I was one again, but young people listened to Donald Trump, uh, to uh, Bernie Sanders, and they said, yeah, democratic, that's good. Socialism, yeah, that's that social media stuff. (laughs) Because our kids no longer learn civics in school, they no longer study Western history, they no longer read Western literature. We are trying to change and dumb down the system, and if you don't know what happened in the past, you're going to have to relive it. It's unfortunate, but true, and we are, I think it's very dangerous. The world we're going into, you see a, the, both the left and the right coming up here, and the middle is getting, unfortunately, not listened to anymore, and it's the extremists that are going to shape the political culture if we're not careful going forward. And we've had extremism before, particularly on this continent. It didn't work out very well. I, I got to tell you, I am I'm continuing to be intrigued by all the Bloomberg audio that's starting to trickle out. He hasn't been vetted. They haven't taken him seriously. And uh, they're going to have to and all the stuff. So now we've got, let's see, as a BuzzFeed News reporting that even as of last year, he was referring to transgendered people as it and men in dresses. That's not going to go over well with the alphabet gang. Uh, he's he's had the the reason that uh, people in uh, in the black community are unemployed is because they're all addicted to drugs is one of the clips that he said and and crime that yeah that's that's not going to go over so well and and those young people they like democratic socialism because they like Democrats and social media and they think socialism yeah no that's not going to go over well um, this this. This is going to come back to biting this audio, except, you know, what's so interesting here is is so much of the media wants to give him a pass. I'm actually intrigued by all these never Trump people who hate President Trump, don't want to vote for him. 
and say he's a racist and a misogynist and an authoritarian, and they're rallying to Mike Bloomberg, who has a history of making racist, misogynist, and authoritarian remarks and is a huge fan of the Chinese command and control society. He has repeatedly on record bragged about China. There's a report out today. He actually tried to ruin a reporter's career because she accurately reported on what the Chinese communists were doing, and Bloomberg is super pro-China. Uh, which should trouble all of us. But, you know, hey, they're not the Russians, so I guess he gets a pass or some such from the media. Hypocrites. All righty. Welcome. The phone number, you want to call in 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. A friend of mine says, I put you all to sleep discussing polling in the first hour. Ah, Critics, 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 critics. Let me play this audio from Ron Brownstein of CNN to set the stage. Uh, in a debate this fall. Can I just one other point, Don, real quick, sure, what, what David was saying before? It's kind of striking. It's kind of striking that all three focus so much fire on Bloomberg, which understandable. He's moved up a lot. They haven't had a chance to lay a glove on him. He's been playing tennis without a net, as I like to say, putting all this money on television. But the fact is, L- let me put the polls the up race. as you're talking about that, that, okay? Yeah. And just let me right. read this and then I'll let right, you finish. Right. This is NBA. This is an NBC Wall Street Journal poll. Puts uh, him at 27% talking about Sanders. Uh, Biden second at 15%. The Marist poll showing Sanders at 31%. And a surging Michael Bloomberg behind him at 19%. Go ahead, please, Ron. But but the point is that Bernie Sanders is the one at 31 in that Marist poll. He crossed 30 in a California poll today. There's several polls out uh, showing him now leading among Latinos nationwide. And I think this gave us a pretty good indication that the other candidates are focused, probably going to be focused more on Bloomberg than on Sanders tomorrow night. It's a continuation of what we've seen through the whole race. They have chosen not most of them not to truly directly engage with him out of a belief that he's still unlikely to be able to put together a coalition to win. But his numbers are going up. He had a really good day in polling across a lot of polls today. And I think it was just striking that Buttigieg and Klobuchar, both both moderates who have criticized Sanders on other occasions, really were so light on that front tonight and maybe a preview of what we're going to see tomorrow with Bloomberg more in the line of fire than the guy who is now the clear national leader in all of these polls. That is a problem uh, for the Democrats that they gotta they've gotta push off. This is very much what happened with with uh, Biden though. When Biden was in the lead, all the Democrats had to fight the number two guy to try to become the number two guy, uh, and it's not working. Meanwhile, you got Sanders coming off uh, blowing up Bloomberg as well. You know, Mr. Bloomberg has every right in the world to run for president of the United States. He's an American citizen, but I don't think he has the right to buy this election. You know, we pride ourselves on being the longest-standing democracy in the world, and we're proud of that. To me, what that means, one person, one vote. You want to run for president? You run for president. You got good ideas? Maybe you win, maybe you don't win. But I do think it's a bit obscene that we have somebody who, by the way, chose not to contest in Iowa, in Nevada, uh, in South Carolina, in New Hampshire, where all of the candidates, we did town meetings, we're talking to thousands and thousands of people working hard. He said, I don't have to do that. I'm worth $60 billion. I have more wealth than the bottom 125 million Americans. I'll buy the presidency. That offends me very much. And tomorrow night, you know, and what also offends me is, you know, I think we're going to take a look at his record. And there are a number of things about his record that I think the American people may not know. 
oh, that's going to be interesting. And it's not just him. Elizabeth Warren has uh, Julian Castro out on the campaign trail for her now. What do you make of these sort of late conversions? (laughs) Look, uh, you know, I think that he is the closest thing that we have to a Donald Trump on the Democratic side. Wow. If you look at his weaknesses. Okay. uh, Stop and frisk. Today, I saw on Fox News that Trump has his folks going out there and pointing out Bloomberg's record with respect to stop and frisk. And you think they're comments. doing it because they're yeah, scared of him? Look, let me tell you, there are a lot of people out there that think that the, the that, that think maybe the best thing that we can do is is nominate a billionaire like Bloomberg because he has the resources. Yeah. I actually think if you look at his record on race, uh, on uh, Wall Street, mm-hmm. uh, all of these uh, sexual harassment uh, complaints that were filed against him and that he settled and he has hush agreements with mm-hmm. women on. He actually is Donald Trump's wet dream. <laughs> Donald Trump wants to run against a guy that has all of this baggage on exactly the issues where Trump can suppress the vote mm-hmm. like he did in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania so that he shaves away at the margins and is able to regain his electoral college victory. So you see Michael Bloomberg as the weakest Democrat you could put up there? Uh, I think that he has the most, he's one of the ones that has the most baggage. And in that sense, he gives Trump a real opportunity to win back the Electoral College. I see. I got to say, I agree with him on this. There are so many people out there who are desperate for Bloomberg. But here's the thing. When you listen to the voices of people who are backing Bloomberg, you know who they are? They're, they're the people who have hated Trump the whole time and have no intention of voting for him now, and they didn't vote for him in 2016. Does Bloomberg add anybody to that? Does Bloomberg, when people find out about his record, does Bloomberg actually add to the people who weren't going to vote for Trump to begin with? I mean, the president's team has already calculated in. There are people who will never vote for Donald Trump. That's one of the most absurd things happening in, in politics right now. Yeah, let, Let's go back to impeachment for a little bit. What was the strategy on impeachment? It was to yell louder. It wasn't to persuade. There were 21 Republicans. There are 21 Republicans who are leaving the House of Representatives, who are retiring. Half of them, I know for certain, at least half of them, hate Donald Trump's guts. And they never have to stand before Donald Trump voters again. They never have to kiss up to Donald Trump again. They they owe him nothing. They blame him for their departure from Congress. And the Democrats couldn't get a single one of them to vote for him or to vote for impeachment. I know a member of Congress who walked with me through a grocery store who referred to Donald Trump as an evil Forrest Gump with an F-bomb thrown in between. An evil Forrest Gump. That's what he actually called the president. As we're walking through a grocery store in Washington, D.C., an evil Forrest Gump. <laughs> and he opposed impeachment. The Democrats, and, and what, what did the strategy become? Just to yell louder, to promote Mitt Romney as a profile in courage when other Republicans would do, be like Mitt Romney. They, 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 they couldn't persuade, so they just yelled. And the response to the yelling from a lot of people is just not to engage. It's, it's not to tell pollsters that they support the president. It's not to be public about the support of the president. It's not to put on bumper stickers and yard signs for the president, but they're still going to vote for the guy. And so along comes Bloomberg. And Bloomberg, unsurprisingly, 
is supported by a lot of the people who hate the president's guts. But they say that the president is an authoritarian. Bloomberg is an authoritarian. New York had two two term term limits and Bloomberg spent tons of money to get the law changed so he could have a third term. Bloomberg, they say that, that Trump is all about the Russians. Uh, Bloomberg has defended Russia's invasion of Crimea. They say that, that Donald Trump's an authoritarian. Bloomberg is an authoritarian. Bloomberg runs his company. Bloomberg's company won't even report negatively on him. Bloomberg News refuses to run pieces uh, deep diving the inquiry about uh, Bloomberg and the other Democrats because they don't want to run anything critical of Bloomberg. Bloomberg has flirted with China. Bloomberg has, loves the Chinese command and control society. Bloomberg has talked in the past about how we need to, the federal government to be able to dictate more building in this country, that the federal government gets hung up on environmental concerns and otherwise when they need to be building roads and bridges and infrastructure. He loves the way the Chinese model. They say Donald Trump's a a racist. Meanwhile, uh, Mike Bloomberg had implemented the stop and frisk policy. Bloomberg has said that, that the reason unemployment is higher in minority communities is because minorities are strung out on drugs and crime. This is Mike Bloomberg, and, and yet, oh, we're going to vote for him because Trump is a racist authoritarian, so we're going to go for the racist authoritarian on the Democratic side. It's really hard to believe the Democrats, to take the Democrats seriously uh, on their concerns about Donald Trump when they are essentially embracing someone like Donald Trump. Donald Trump has the famous video where he said he could grab a woman by her, you know what, Mike Bloomberg is, is all over the place with sexually, uh, sexually explicit comments about women. He had one woman come up to him on the job to say she was pregnant and he, his words to her were, kill it. And they think that he's going to go up against Trump. See, here's here's the here's the rule in politics. Everyone needs to understand now. You don't beat the president by behaving like the president, behaving like the way you think the president behaves. It really is Donald Trump's singular superpower. He makes everyone else behave in the way they claim he behaves. And Bloomberg deciding he's going to behave just like the president to beat the president, I don't think works in his favor. But, of course, Sanders continues to go up in the polls. Uh, i got to play you this because you need to hear the the tone and substance and everything of this uh, morning Joe clip about Sanders polling. Tonight should be very exciting. A look at the Democratic field for president ahead of tonight's debate. The latest NBC News Wall Street Journal poll shows Bernie Sanders now with a double-digit national lead in that primary race at 27 percent. The senator's 12-point margin over Joe Biden isn't because he gained support over the past month. It's because Biden lost 11 points and is now at 15 percent. That is a statistical tie with Mike Bloomberg and Elizabeth Warren, who are both at 14 percent. Bloomberg up five while Warren lost a point. Pete Buttigieg also within the margin of error for second place at 13 percent, up six points since last month. All the shifting polling. Notice downplaying Sanders' surge as if it has everything to do with Biden's collapse. It doesn't necessarily have to. It has to do with with, uh, um, Bernie consolidating his support and the moderates fracturing. This is what happened, frankly, with the uh, with the Trump race in 2016. You had all the the everybody fracturing that they were they didn't like Ted Cruz. They didn't want Ted Cruz to be the nominee, so they all stayed in the race to make sure Ted Cruz couldn't be the nominee. And then realized that Donald Trump had consolidated his lead, and they couldn't beat him anymore. 
And with Sanders now, with proportional primaries all, Sanders is racking up delegates. Bloomberg hasn't even gotten in the race yet. Look, you're going to have the first four major races, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, before Bloomberg is ever on a ballot. And Bloomberg will be on the ballot in California. Bloomberg is spending inordinate resources in California. He's got 2,000 field staffers in California alone. And the latest polling out of California has him behind Sanders which is really impressive given the amount of money. Now, it's great for Bloomberg in that he has skyrocketed in the polling. He actually has done a very good job of skyrocketing in the polling. Uh, He actually has done a very good job of uh, making sure that he's competitive. But when you're in a situation where you have – uh, proportional delegation, it delegates the whole way through. You got a problem. I mean, we got um, the South Carolina polling is out. Biden and Sanders tied at 23. Um, Bloomberg isn't on the ballot there. So Bernie and Biden could split the vote. But let's see, where do we have the, the, the survey USA poll in California has Sanders up four over Bloomberg, Biden in third place, everybody else out. Uh, this, though, comes uh, – there's a PPIC poll of the California Democratic primary. came out yesterday as well. It has Sanders at 32, Biden at 12. Uh, so the question is where is Sanders actually in the polling and Biden or, – or where is Bloomberg? There are too many Bs now. You've got Buttigieg, Biden, Bloomberg, Bernie. It, it, it's confusing me. But all of the polling is consistently in California showing that Bernie Sanders is in the lead. Even as Bloomberg is surging, Bernie's in the lead. And so the Democrats, if they want to if they want to stop Bernie, they gotta consolidate the field. But they're not willing to consolidate the field because they're not willing to give it to a man who's buying the vote. And they do believe, like Sanders said, even the mainstream Democrats are out there complaining that Bloomberg is trying to buy the race. And Democrats are philosophically opposed to money in politics. And because they're philosophically opposed to money in politics, they got to be opposed to a guy like Bloomberg coming in and spending billions. But my goodness, he's spreading so much money around, even to to supposedly um, um, objective outlets. He, he's starting to spend ad money. And they want the money, and you're seeing just how many people are willing to sacrifice their values for the almighty dollar. Bloomberg is making them put up or shut up on that front. It's fascinating to see. The Center for American Progress, a a reliably liberal outfit, had a uh, white paper they were going to have out that had an entire section critical of Bloomberg's record in New York. Bloomberg gave them several million dollars, and guess what didn't make it into the white paper? All of these supposedly pure as the driven snow ideological warriors on the left are willing to become great grifters in Bloomberg's orbit of influence. And it's fascinating to watch them sell out when for years these people have accused Republicans of selling out to corporate interests. And they're now willing to do exactly as they claim the other side was doing. I haven't even gotten to the coronavirus stuff I intended to talk about today. Needless to say, you know, I mentioned the other day that Tom Cotton had raised the issue of the coronavirus, was it released accidentally or otherwise from that facility in Wuhan, China, that experiments on the coronavirus? And the Washington Post ran a sensational story uh, that he was thoroughly debunked, that that there was was no way he was thoroughly debunked. They cited as proof that he was being debunked 
they cited a, a an expert from Rutgers University, Richard Eggbright. A, 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 yeah, Ebright, Ebright, a biology professor at Rutgers University. Well, the same professor who told the Washington Post that it was highly unlikely and there was no evidence of it, actually tells the BBC, quote, the genomic sequencing of the coronavirus suggests no proof that it had been artificially modified, but he could not rule out the possibility that the pandemic could be the result of a lab incident. He said the coronavirus was a cousin of one found in bats, captured by the Institute in Wuhan, uh, captured in caves in the southwestern province of Yunnan in 2003, and that samples had been kept in the Wuhan lab since 2013. That's from the BBC, and and yet he wants to be thoroughly debunked. And i got to tell you, there there is an emotional zeal out there from people wanting to prove Tom Cotton wrong. And, and I get the idea. You don't want to fear monger and stuff. But what I find striking about the coronavirus coverage right now in the American media, and, and even the World Health Organization statements in the last 48 hours have been, we don't want people to be mean to Asians. We don't want there to be discrimination. You can still go eat Chinese food. I, 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 honest to God, don't know of a single person who is blaming Asian people or refusing to go eat Chinese food because of the coronavirus. And yet when you look at the major American media outlets covering it, uh, they are singularly fixated on the possibility, not, not the actuality, but the possibility of discrimination against Asians, not just Chinese, but Asians in general. Because of the coronavirus, as opposed to actually covering what's happening with the coronavirus and their rush to debunk Tom Cotton. It, it, it actually it, I'm impressed by how quickly they rushed out to debunk Tom Cotton on this stuff. And uh, it turns out that the people they're debunking Tom Cotton with are uh, in, in other research saying, hey, wait a second. Um we can't actually dispute this yet. We don't have enough knowledge. And yes, uh, this sort of coronavirus is experimented on in this lab in Wuhan. And again, Tom Cotton is not saying that, that the Chinese deployed this, saying there could be an accident. Do you know how many accidents at the CDC we've had in this country? Are, are we to say that the Chinese are more competent than the CDC? Uh, but this, this oh, we, we can't, we can't suggest that maybe this is even legitimate, that this is a kooky conspiracy theory. You know, I got to say, this is why we have so many people embracing conspiracy theories in this country, because the media refuses to acknowledge legitimate questions and claims they're all crazy conspiracies. And if everything is a crazy conspiracy, nothing's a crazy conspiracy. The QAnon stuff, if, if you've dared to go down that rabbit hole, it is seriously demented, deranged stuff. And I know people who have bought into the QAnon stuff, and they are the type of person you can believe would buy into the QAnon stuff, people who failed at life and they blame everyone else for their own failures as opposed to taking responsibility for their own failures in life. Uh, so they they invent elaborate conspiracies to blame the world is out to get them and the world is out to get Donald Trump and the world is against everyone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's, uh, nine times out of ten, your local conspiracy theorist is someone who can't accept their own failures in life and must blame other people. But the media now considers everything they don't like to be a conspiracy theory. The media considers any suspect issue to be a conspiracy theory. Take, for example, the fact that Politico 
ran a story in 2016 that Ukraine really did want to help Hillary Clinton and stay in her good graces because she was going to win, and they wanted to improve their position with the American government. And now suddenly you suggest that Ukraine might have tried to help Hillary Clinton. Oh, it's a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy theory. Well, then why was Politico writing about it in 2016 if it's a conspiracy theory? Why weren't you debunking it then? But the inconvenient narrative becomes the conspiracy theory for the the media. Meanwhile, there are still concerns with where the coronavirus came from and when is the outbreak going to stop and what is China doing? We'll keep you posted here.